This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Lam, and today we are interviewing Nicholas Breifogel about uh, the book he's the editor of, Eurasian Environments, Nature and Ecology in Imperial Russia and Soviet History. So thank you for being with us today. Um, Would you like to tell us just a couple of words about yourself? Absolutely, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast. Uh, so my name is Nick Breifogel. I'm a professor at uh, the Ohio State University in the history department, and I'm a specialist in um, uh, both Russian history, Russian Soviet history, and uh, also uh, global environmental history. And for the last kind of 10 plus years, I've been uh, one of the editors of the online magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. So why is a book on Russian and Soviet environmental history important? I think it's important for for two reasons. Uh, one being the uh, the importance to to the contemporary world in the sense that uh, uh, we face tremendous kind of environmental problems and environmental issues from, from climate to water to pollution uh, you know, to health issues. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, and Russia, in particular, the Russian Empire. Having been as much as uh, one sixth of the world's surface, uh, they have a tremendous amount to teach us uh, as we confront uh, contemporary environmental issues. At the same time, I thought that the book was really important uh, to put together uh, uh, for uh, to kind of move scholarship forward. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I think that there's a tremendous amount that people who study Russian history can learn from uh, the study of the environment, and there's also a tremendous amount that. Uh, in- Historians of, of the environment around the world can learn uh, from the the study of Russia. Uh, environmental history is a relatively new field of study uh, for scholars. Really, in the last kind of 30, 40 years, it's really taken off, uh, and there's a tremendous amount that I think we can learn and, and helps us to rethink fundamental questions about uh, about Russian history and about world history by looking at the uh, environmental questions. And, and this is the kind of book that had to be written in some ways as a as a as, as an edited collection, as one with a, a, a wide variety of different contributing authors, because the uh, the, the range of, uh, of locations and time periods and topics is so great that one needed the expertise of all the different people who come uh, come together to make this book possible. So this idea of sort of expanding the way historians look at the world, I think, is really interesting. Um, you know, I do a lot of work on collectivization and agricultural history, and that mm-hmm. seems to be something that I notice is missing from a lot of contemporary works on collectivization is people don't look at things such as rainfall, snowfall, diseases cattle get, diseases that uh, affect crops and how this, plus, of course, really bad Soviet policies led to famine. But they tend to focus more on the political aspects and not for the 
example for the fact that we can get like snow in June in Kirov. You know, the government can't really control that. So are there other ways that you see environmental history touching on some of these more important or more commonly studied topics uh, in Soviet history? Mm-hmm. I mean, in many respects, taking an environmental historical approach allows us to, to rethink um, well, just about everything we think we know about uh, you know, about Russian history, or, or indeed about human history in general. I mean, environmental history starts from the from the assumption that at its foundation, you know, human history is is only rarely, uh, if at all, just simply the uh, the history of humanity. That humans exist in a uh, an extraordinarily uh, intricate web of relationships with. Uh, with both the organic and inorganic world, and that these have tremendous impacts on uh, on the outcomes of uh, of human life. That we um, we we don't make the world uh, in, in the way that we want it to be much of the time. And uh, and environmental history is it, it changes how we think about a lot of things. On the one hand, you know, there's a whole variety of different types of uh, of sources or methodologies that we can uh, we can use in environmental history that that give us insight into a particular topic. Uh, so, in addition to you know the the standard historical sorry the standard historian's toolkit of um, uh, of both kind of published and unpublished documents and books and oral history and this sort of thing. Now you can add, you know, what we can learn from ice cores or pollen samples or tree rings or varves or genomic analysis or, I mean, and the list kind of goes on. Uh, so that these things, these kinds of new types of sources can really help us see the world in a very different sort of way. What's also marvelous about environmental history is, is that, uh, you know, Ultimately, everybody who lives on the planet exists uh, in an environment, and so it is a it's an approach to history that is immediately comparative uh, across time and across place. and And so, one of the things that it does, in particular, and that this book really highlights, is is the way in which the Soviet experience um, looks looks very similar. Uh, to uh, many other parts of the world, uh, there was a tendency, you know, over the previous decades, and particularly during the Cold War, to see the Soviet Union as somehow fundamentally different. Uh, that they had gone off in a completely different path. And yet, when one looks at Soviet history through an environmental lens, one realizes that many of the policies and practices that the Soviet industrialists or agriculturalists or policymakers up to that these are very, very similar to what we see in other parts of the world. And uh, and it's a good reminder of the way in which these kinds of uh, differences in political system that we as humans often think are tremendously important, in this case, at least in the modern era, often aren't, and that there's a very shared, there's a shared way of thinking and approaching uh, economic development uh, and uh, these sorts of things and resource use uh, in the modern era that is shared across almost any political system one uh, one looks at the other thing that the environmental history really points to is is kind of continuities across time. Environmental history really asks us to to kind of rethink the time frames in which we look at the human experience. I mean, obviously, as humans, we think about about time uh, as it relates to our everyday lives, the minutes, the hours, uh, the weeks, the years of our lives. Um, but these are not always the best ways of kind of seeing processes of uh, of historical causation or historical change take place and. Um, and so, you know, the authors in this book make very clear on a number of occasions the degree to which many of the things that uh, many of the policies or environmental uh, activities that we see in the Soviet period, that these are not peculiarly Soviet, but that they have very clear roots and origins in um, in the in the Tsarist period and even before that, uh, and that there may be 
I don't know, different emphases or accelerations of this sort of thing, but that there's a fundamental process to modern kind of Russian history from Tsars through Soviet into post-Soviet uh, that shares a lot of characteristics. Uh, and so seeing seeing the history not based upon uh, the, the usual political divisions that we think are so important, uh, but rather divisions based upon changes in how humans uh, interact with the natural world, uh, that these unveil a different way of thinking about Russian and Soviet history. So let's talk about this a little bit more. You actually begin the book with a tale of two dams built 150 years apart. So they very nicely bridge these sort of artificial historical time periods we've created. Would you like to tell us briefly about these stories and why they're important? Sure. Well, I mean, I start the book with these two, the, the two great, um, just great moments from, uh, from two wonderful pieces of Russian literature. One, a book called The Family Chronicle uh, by Sergei Aksakov from the early part of the 19th century, and then uh, a second called uh, Farewell to Matiora uh, by Valentin Rasputin from the uh, the kind of post-war period. And uh, both deal with the building of dams, but very different types of dams. The uh, the story that Aksakov tells is is one of uh, it's a very small river. Uh, it's his family, with the help of all their serfs and many others, Block up the uh, the river uh, by you know, sticking in uh, big pylons and then throwing in whatever debris they can to catch and eventually to kind of block the the, the water, and then they uh, they build a a mill for grinding grain uh, on the side, and it's a way for them then to um, uh, to make the um, the food that they need in their particular area. The dam in the, from the second story is a very different one. Uh, Rasputin tells the story of the building of the, the Bratsk Dam, uh, which, is, which was, at the time it was built, the largest hydroelectric dam in the world, a massive undertaking uh, that flooded a vast amount of territory behind, uh, behind it when they closed up the um, dam. And Rasputin tells the story of, uh, of a kind of village and an island in the middle of a river that is about to go underwater once they, uh, they start to fill up uh, the reservoir behind the Bratz Dam. And, uh, you know, I'll start with these stories because they, they reflect both the continuities and changes of how uh, Russians have related to, to water and to damming. You know, the continuities uh, that are very clear in both of these stories is, is the, uh, the importance of control over nature uh, the, and, and the aspiration of humans to be able to somehow control nature and put nature to, uh, to their uses and devices and, uh, and for, their, for their own ends. There's a tremendous continuity uh, from what we might see as a kind of colonial or imperial perspective in the sense that both of these both of these dams are ones that are built in territory that had that had been conquered by Russia uh, that had previously not been settled by Russian peoples, one the kind of Bashkir lands, uh, the other territory that had been inhabited by Buryats. and uh, and the way in which both of these stories focus on the importance of controlling nature, for Russians as part of the, the process of imperial control in those regions. A third kind of continuity is, is, the, is the kind of focus of the local and the global. In, in both of these stories, the, uh, the authors really give you an incredible sense of the actual place in which these take uh, place. You can kind of, you can hear the water rushing by, you can feel the temperature, you can see the kind of, uh, you know, the, the mud and the debris in the water. And, and yet at the same time, in both of these cases, you know, these are these are very very local events. At the same time that they're taking place in in a in a much larger global context, uh, imperial expansion in the 19th century, uh, hydroelectric development in the 20th century. These are 
are world processes that take place in uh, in the hundreds and thousands of other locations uh, around the world. So these are both shared and very similar stories uh, across the planet at the same time that they are very, very local and uh, and defined by the, the specificities of, uh, of the place and the river that they're in. So there are these kinds of continuities that you see in these stories, but there's also really important uh, changes. And in particular, just the ways in which these two authors think about um, the, the dammings of the river and the possibilities of control of nature. Aksakov in the 19th century is, is a story of unambiguous kind of triumphalism, that he, it's a story of, I mean, ultimately it's a story of his grandfather conquering the river and as a result putting his, his stamp on the control of this particular place. Rasputin is a little bit more ambivalent and ambiguous, that it is a kind of mixed story. You know, on the one hand, they're building what is the largest hydroelectric dam anywhere, uh, at that point, uh, but on the other hand, there is the sort of uncertainty that, in fact, humans can um, can aspire to try to control uh, this natural world. Uh, Rasputin is filled with all these sort of great lines, uh, with these characters talking with each other. One in particular uh, strikes me, where there's one young son who says uh, to his grandmother, uh, "Man is king of nature," uh, and then the grandma uh, grandmother replies, "Yes, yes, king." Just rain a bit, and you'll be sorry. Uh, this idea that somehow trying to control nature is going to make you sorry—that it's not going to ruling over nature is not going to turn out the way that you want it to. Uh, so that there's a big change in terms of how the humans uh, in these two different stories are thinking about just the possibilities of uh, of human control of nature, and so it, it reflects this a fundamental trans uh, transformation of um, uh, you know, how humans are thinking about these questions. Uh, and of course, the dams are totally different things. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the first dam that Aksakov uh, describes being built is a tiny, quaint, lovely little thing uh, in comparison to the, uh, the monster of concrete that is the Bratsk Dam. And so that there's a huge, even if humans are building dams in both centuries, uh, the type of dam is a completely different thing, and, and that change in kind of size and and uh, is such that it really becomes almost a different type of entity. So we see these kinds of continuities and changes in these two stories that help to kind of set the stage for uh, for a lot of the work that uh, for a lot of the research that's in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The Soviet Union tends to be particularly well known for its dam irrigation and hydropower projects. Uh, mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've interviewed uh, several authors about them, and they tend to sort of uh, decide that they work really well as propaganda, that they're really good at projecting the mastery of nature as a propaganda tool, but as an actual functioning object, they tend to be sort of an ecological disaster that ends up costing many workers their lives, and uh, often being too shallow for the draft of large shifts or otherwise ineffective. The same is true with irrigation projects, particularly in Central Asia. They tend to be viewed as unmitigated disasters. In this book, you have two different authors who write about these Soviet projects. What sort of conclusions do they draw? 
No, it's a great question. One of the things that the book, um, I think basically all the authors in the book try to do is to is to push away from that kind of the, almost what's become a sort of stereotype that you, you you've just described that uh, uh, that you know, ultimately everything that the, the Soviet Union touched when it came to the environment you know turned to uh, you know horrific uh, outcomes death pestilence pollution uh, all of these sorts of things and uh, the authors of the book really try to push back against that to a degree uh, and particularly that there's a of ecocide that uh, that the Soviet Union in some ways uh, unleashed upon itself. I mean, it, it, it carried out a kind of self-suicide through uh, ecological uh, kinds of means, through uh, destroying public health, through uh, uh, through pollution, uh, through an environmental degradation, and these sorts of things. And and the authors, in many respects, they're not trying to say that uh, that these things didn't happen, uh, that there weren't obviously environmental uh, huge environmental problems, but of course. There are huge environmental problems across the planet uh, in the uh, in the 20th century, and but rather to kind of to really explore on the one hand that pr- that things weren't as comparatively bad uh, as often we like to think, and on the other hand that they, they stop and try to explore well what are the reasons for when we do have extreme pollution or environmental degradation uh, or these sorts of things what are the reasons for it uh, and in particular many of these uh, many of these uh, these articles underline the ways in which, in, in fact, the the human relationship with the natural world uh, was a big part of what defined the actual kind of pollution outcomes. And uh, so, rather than just being a, a kind of political decisions of uh, of unthoughtful elites, although that was a big part of it, uh, there's a whole variety of other reasons uh, to explore here. And uh, and the two articles that you were uh, you were mentioning in particular uh, both uh, deal with. Uh, kind of water projects and water manipulation uh, in uh, in Central Asia uh, in uh, in the twentieth century. One by Christian Teichmann uh, that explores uh, the kind of irrigation networks uh, in in Central Asia and efforts on the part of um, uh, of the Soviet state to uh, to try to uh, to administer them. Because one of the points that he makes that is really important is the way in which you know ultimately the um, uh, the management of water, the distribution of water, who gets access to water, when and where, these are uh, tremendously important uh, kind of uh, political questions and, in fact, existential questions for the people in uh, in those areas. So that a big part of how Soviet power was experienced, uh, how it was manifested uh, in the Central Asian regions really focused in on the whole question of, uh, of, of administering the irrigation system. So you know, uh, cleaning the canals and looking after them, uh, and um, uh, and then deciding who gets which water, when, uh, and uh, and how. And one of the things that Damon Teichman really underscores is the way in which you you have an, a, a, an interesting combination of factors that come together to determine the outcomes there. I mean, at the end of the day, he really sees the Soviet state in this in this area being what he called both arbitrary and kind of violent in terms of how it approached uh, the local population. But he doesn't see this solely as, uh, as, as a result of, uh, of, of the nature of the Soviet system, of the ideology of the Soviet system, but rather uh, of the way in which uh, the Soviet system was trying to work with uh, you know, a set of rivers that were uh, tremendously kind of unpredictable in terms of their flood. They were highly seasonal. Uh, and... Uh, and that when you take these unpredictable uh, and uh, and highly variable types of, uh, of of water systems, 
and try to integrate them into a command economy uh, and kind of administrative framework, uh, and also a kind of colonial type of framework with uh, uh, with the, the kind of native population. Uh, that that in many respects is what uh, led to this, this kind of arbitrariness of rule uh, and kind of mobilization of the population uh, through through violent means. And so, uh, you know, here he's in some ways flipping your question uh, the other way around in the sense that rather than looking solely at the ways in which humans are destroying nature, uh, thinking about the ways in which the natural world is um, is actually transforming the, the structures of the, of the Soviet political system uh, and its economy and the relationship between different ethnic groups is being defined, at least in part, uh, by the physical structures and the hydrological structures of, uh, of these rivers. Um, Julia Obertreitz, which was another one of the articles in that section, uh, makes in some ways sort of similar types of arguments about the, the ways in which... Uh, the, the structures of water, uh, in, in this case, kind of a pollution of water that occurred because of various sorts of, uh, uh, of irrigation policies, particularly cotton growing policies um, in, uh, in the kind of uh, in the regions now Uzbekistan, uh, that you know, human response to this led to the development of a, of a, of a, of a political environmental movement uh, that, uh, that critiqued uh, state power and, uh, and championed yeah, you know, the the ideas of the application of other types of models uh, and other types of uh, of kind of water use uh, practices uh, to the point that it becomes a, a a fundamental not so much threat to the system but a, but a challenge to the structure of the, uh, of the system. And as you know, she comes to the conclusion at the end that it's really important to realize the degree to which, on the one hand, there is an environmental movement that grew up uh, strongly and powerfully. Uh, in the Soviet Union, and then that this environmental movement is is one of the reasons. Uh, by the time we get to the 1980s and early 1990s, that the Soviet system, uh, in fact, came to an end, uh, and uh, uh, so that here again the uh, water pollution of water, disease in water, and this sort of thing uh, transformed human activity by by creating this, you know, helping to foster this environmental movement, uh, which then ultimately. Uh, destabilized uh, the uh, the Soviet political structure. So let's talk about the other big resource in Central Asia, which is land, particularly mm-hmm. arable and grazing land. This is a problem that again transcends, you know, these political systems. It started in the imperial era when you start having Russian settlers being moved out to the steppes and coming into conflict with you know, the grazing nomadic peoples. Um, And, of course, continues during the Soviet period when you have things such as the settlement of nomads and conflict, again, between settled populations and nomadic populations. Um, What role did the environmental conditions play in this conflict? And how was the environment impact? How was the environment impacted by change in land use? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, just a a fabulous type of question. The the authors uh, in this book really... Again, really focus on the ways in which uh, the the nature. Well, I keep saying the nature of, but but the environment, uh, the characteristics of the environment in this particular place, uh, when that intersects with uh, human ideas and ways of thinking, uh, and human sort of socio political and economic structures, leads to a whole series of outcomes. Uh, and so, as as you said, I mean, some is the the sort of the the, the standard textbook story of uh, of, of Russian expansion and Soviet expansion into uh, into the steppe region is one of this 
uh, of this relatively quick from a uh, from a human perspective transformation of uh, of what had been uh, past, uh, what had been grasslands, uh, which had been primarily used for uh, pastoral uh, nomadism, uh, into kind of areas of settled agriculture, uh, and uh, and all of these kind of articles explore the ways in which, uh, in fact, what that broad story is is true. The process by which it took place, in, in some respects, is uh, is is more interesting and more complicated. Uh, and helps to really understand the relationship between different groups of people and the place quite differently. Uh, so, for, exa- for example, Ian Campbell in his chapter looks at the, this, this phenomenon called jout, uh, which is this, this kind of remarkable kind of freezing uh, on, uh, on the steppe. It's a, a kind of layer of snow and ice that freezes solid over top of the steppe so that animals can't reach, uh, they can't break through it, uh, they can't access any food there. Uh, and um, and as a result, you have kind of massive famines on the part uh, for uh, for this livestock if they can't move quickly enough to get somewhere else. And what's important about that story is not just that, uh, not just the ways in which the uh, this this kind of freezing process um, affected uh, the, uh, the livestock herders and uh, and their herds, uh, but the way in which uh, Jout in particular was a tremendously important. Uh, became a kind of tremendously important idea for czarist administrators uh, in the sense that they saw uh, Jout uh, in some ways, uh, they characterized it as a disaster, which is something that uh, the nomads hadn't before. I mean, it was just something that they lived with before. The czarist state came in and saw this as, this is a kind of natural disaster. And and they believed it a natural disaster that was caused by uh, what the czarist officials saw as uh, as the kind of less civilized, less capable uh, characteristics of 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 the of the pastoral nomads, and so uh, as they justified them to themselves, the idea of transforming these these uh, these grasslands into uh, into agricultural fields to actually till the soil, uh, the fact of jout, the fact of this uh, this freezing, uh, was referred to repeatedly as justification for uh, for. Uh, for tilling the soil, for uh, putting an end to pastoral nomadism, and in particular for uh, instituting policies of, uh, of allowing the migration of Russian peasants uh, to settle into this region. So uh, a big part of what justifies, and in fact, in some ways, what creates the whole ideology of peasant resettlement uh, and, um, uh, and, and settled agriculture and the tilling of the soil, these are things that come out of, 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 a, of a human response on the part of, uh, of the czarist officials to this particular uh, environmental uh, reality, this sort of sudden freezing that happens on the steppe in, in, uh, in specific kinds of, uh, of, of conditions. Um, and so the whole idea of a kind of a mission civilatrice is, uh, is something that, uh, that develops in great part uh, in discussions over Jout. Um, uh, Sarah Cameron, who talks about a similar types of story, a little bit more broadly about the the ways in which the the pastoral, the Kazakh pastoral nomads were transformed by the process, really highlights the way in which uh, the settlement of these people was by no means a, a, a foregone conclusion. As Russians arrived, uh, that it required a whole series of stages and processes to make it happen, uh, and that it wasn't it was neither a straight line uh, nor nor as I said foregone. Uh, but that a big part of the story of what we see here of, uh, of, of the kind of transformation of the experiences of the Kazakh uh, nomads has to do with 
with the ways in which they became less and less resilient over time, the steppe is, uh, again, is a kind of variable type of climate, uh, particularly in terms of temperature and, and water and this sort of thing. Um, and the arrival of, of Russians, the beginnings of settled agriculture, uh, really reduced the resiliency of, uh, of, of the nomadic peoples. Uh, that, uh, uh, and, and for two reasons. One, because they, uh, they began to integrate more and more uh, grain into their diet, uh, something they had not before. And, uh, uh, and this is grain that they would need to, uh, to kind of uh, purchase or trade for, this sort of thing. Uh, and this kind of shift in diet to include a greater percentage of grain uh, actually meant that they were uh, ingesting less food and less calories. Uh, and so that at moments where the environment became uh, more extreme and more difficult to live in, they were much less, they were more, sorry, more vulnerable and less resilient to those kinds of, uh, those kinds of changes. So as we're thinking about, well, what are the fate of the, of the nomadic peoples? The variability of the climate is tremendously important and the way which it then intersected with small changes, particularly the, uh, uh, the addition of grain to their diet. One of the other articles in, the, in, this, in this section, I mean, there's two others that are great. One by Mark Eli deals with the, the ways in which uh, uh, the efforts to kind of settle uh, and, and to grow grain on the steppe, uh, particularly in the, uh, in the 20th century, uh, led to uh, amazing debates um, uh, among scientists over questions of climate change. So, uh, so that you know, the, the persistence of drought and issues of trying to grow grain in these areas uh, it brought about really, really interesting and thoughtful discussions of, of just what was climate change and what caused these kinds of problems. And so a lot of initial Soviet discussion of the whole question of, uh, of, of, of climate modeling and all these sorts of things come out of uh, this this particular region and and efforts, uh, particularly in the Virgin Lands campaign and this sort of thing, uh, to um, uh, to grow grain in an area that was really hard for it because of this variability of uh, of water and temperature and this sort of thing. Um, I think that's really interesting, and I think that this is unfortunately something that's lacking in a lot of studies in Soviet history. You know, like I said, I do a lot on collectivization and looking at things such as the impact of climate is really important. Um, different diseases, different crop mm-hmm. failures. Certainly in the Kirov region, most of it really is caused by our sort of schizophrenic climate. We can have, I like this year, we had snow, uh, 2018, we had snow on the 1st of June. And it killed mm-hmm. everybody's potatoes. <laughs> so, you know, I think that we often tend to over-prioritize the political factors and under-prioritize these things. So I think this is a really interesting step forward. Can I you just know, jump in on that? I was just going to sure. say that, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really, that I really love about the authors in this book is that they are doing exactly what you said. They're saying, they're reminding us of the importance of, uh, of, 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 of the physical world, whether it's other animals or other you know, plants or whether it's water or air or land, um, that and reminding us that it's not just, as you say, political or, or, or economic structures or this sort of thing. Uh, but they're also not kind of swinging from one pole to the other. They're not saying, oh, it's only climate. It's, you know, that it's only rainfall that matters or this sort of thing. That, you know, each of these chapters is, is particularly important because it really, they try to explore the ways in which the, these two, the kind of human world of, of, of political decisions and cultural practices and cultural understandings uh, and social systems and all these things are constantly intersecting with 
the physical realities of, uh, of of the world in which we are, you know, sort of deeply embedded. Uh, and so it's it's part of a much larger kind of rethinking of of how we should understand how causation, you know, uh, how causation works in human history. What causes the kinds of outcomes that we have uh, in in any given moment in human history, and and really reminding us of how. Uh, humans are consistently and deeply embedded in a in a series of kind of ongoing mutually influential relationships between you know, flora, fauna, climate, water, uh, and all these things, and the the kind of the, the human experience uh, at uh, at the same time, to the point that you can't separate them anymore. Uh, there's a real push in this book towards what you know, what the Buddhists would call the non non-duality uh, that is the the ways in which you know humans and nature exist simultaneously fully integrated kind of into each other and so often the way we talk about humans and nature is if they are separate entities fundamentally misses the point uh, of how uh, it is a, a constant and ongoing set of relationships uh, and uh, so rather than privileging one or the other they're really looking at the ways in which these these relationships are constantly reinforcing and transforming each other uh, in in producing the historical outcomes that we did, in fact, have. So far, we've really only talked about basically negative intersections that produce mm-hmm. pretty pretty bad historical outcomes. But there are actually good historical outcomes too in in Russian history. Uh, for example, ecotourism. You know, Imperial Russia pioneered health related ecotourism in places like Karelia and Crimea. It continues to this day. You know, here in the Kirov region, we have. Uh, uh, Mineral Springs Sanatorium, which just for our listeners is a place where you go and get health treatments, not a mental hospital. And so how did people start figuring out that they needed to keep these places ecologically pure, that they were healthy? And what sort of services did they offer over the course of time from Imperial Russia to the Soviet Union to the modern era? One of the, uh, I mean, one of the great examples we can point to is uh, is Crimea uh, in in terms of uh, in terms of. I mean, we talk about ecotourism, but also just uh, kind of environmental health tourism. Uh, there's a chapter in the book by George Lywood which looks at the kind of origins of this particular uh, process, where uh, he shows the ways in which uh, Crimea became uh, what what the Russians used to call a kind of uh, a, a coast of health. It became a place that was. Uh, associated with cures for disease, with general health for the population, uh, and that this was something that was, you know, it, in part it was part of an uh, of the imperial process that uh, the Crimea had been brought into uh, to the Russian Empire in the 18th century, and perhaps differently than some other areas, it was integrated not so much necessarily through, I don't know, uh, through uh, you know the military or this sort of thing, but rather through. Uh, the use of this place as uh, as as health tourist sites, and it was a, a process over the course of the 19th century, particularly in the late 19th century, uh, where the um, uh, where doctors in these areas realized that uh, the the specific uh, kind of characteristics of this region, the the temperatures, the uh, the qualities of the air, the uh, the quality of the of the water, the Black Sea, in terms of the the specific salt and mineral content. Uh, that uh, and the, the the types of produce that could be produced uh, in the Crimean region, uh, that these were things that um, had health benefits for the population. Uh, and and doctors in the late nineteenth, early part of the twentieth century in Russia, uh, uh, they 
they clearly understood uh, the the kind of bacterial revolution. They understood germ theory. They understood that disease was caused by you know small microscopic things that we couldn't see. Um, but they also still held very strongly to an, a to an, a kind of environmental approach to uh, to health to to health to, to cures and to kind of health maintenance, uh, where they believed that being being exposed to and within uh, specific types of uh, of kind of quote unquote healthy environments could really uh, do a lot to to cure people who were sick and also to keep those who were healthy even more healthy to kind of bolster the immune system and this sort of thing and so you know, the the Crimean coast over the course of the uh, the late nineteenth early part of the twentieth century and then on through the uh, uh, on through the twentieth century into the Soviet period became a uh, uh, a place where people went for, I mean, not just for relaxation by the water, but for actual health uh, treatments. Uh, and these would range from everything from just sort of, you know, sometimes the doctors would prescribe sitting out in the sun or just going to float out in uh, out in the out in the Black Sea. Uh, in other cases, they would um, uh, uh, would prescribe um, kind of mud baths of different sorts, uh, or uh, you know, the most in some ways the most famous or infamous was the was the grape treatment where you would eat only grapes uh, for many days on end, increasing the number of grapes you ate as you went through. This was a kind of, uh, this would just purge your whole system of anything that, uh, that was wrong with it. Uh, and, uh, and so there was a whole series of kind of health activities that you could do in this particular area. And this, so this was a, in many respects, this is a story of the way in which the human interaction with the uh, with nature and the environment of Crimea was one that um, that didn't necessarily lead to uh, you know, hydroelectric dams or pollution or this sort of thing, but rather led to the development of a uh, uh, of a health tourist process and and the development of uh, uh, of an entire network and infrastructure of uh, of, of health preservation uh, and uh, and and kind of medical facilities in this particular area that took advantage of. Uh, what they saw as the desirable qualities of the of the air and the water and uh, and the soil and this sort of thing in uh, in that particular region and and people came from all over Russia and the Soviet Union and other parts of the world to uh, you know to take the cures that were available there. So I guess this leads me to my last question: Was there a conservation movement in? Uh, Imperial Russia, the Soviet Union, and if so, were did they have any sort of success stories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, very, very much so. Uh, the Soviet system is—I mean, sorry, the Russian, the Soviet system uh, is probably best known uh, in terms of conservation for the development of uh, of a uh, of a series of nature preserves known as Zapovietniks. And the the Zapovietniks were a, a kind of alternative model to the national park model, national park model that the the United States has uh, has championed globally, uh, in the sense that the the, the Zapovietniks were were nature preserves that were designed to kind of set aside specific uh, blocks of, of of territory or specific kind of ecosystems, uh, and to prevent, for the most part, humans from entering into those territories. So they were they were sort of separated out from regular human activity. Uh, with the with the exception of of scientific research, and so they were there. These uh, these kind of no go zones, highly protected zones, uh, were separated out for uh, in order to kind of protect the ecosystems and the species uh, that were in there, and then also to allow for scientists to kind of see uh, how the natural world and these ecosystems developed and changed over time, 
uh, kind of absent uh, human impact and human intervention. And uh, this Apovietnik idea developed in the very late uh, kind of czarist period, right, around, right in as we're just coming into World War One. First state uh, nature preserve in Russia was established in 1916 in the middle of World War One. Uh, and uh, uh, but then these ideas are uh, are taken and expanded widely uh, during the Soviet system, and and there are ups and downs at different points in terms of the um, uh, the degree to which there is uh, you know how much land is protected uh, and and how strictly. Uh, but uh, but the Zapovietnik system is is one of the great kind of uh, Russian and Soviet kind of contributions to uh, ideas of nature uh, preservation and. And for all of their ups and downs and for, and for whatever weaknesses that system might have, they had tremendous impacts. Um, if you take the example of the, of the first uh, Zepa Vietnik, which was uh, uh, developed on the, on the shores of Lake Baikal uh, in, um, uh, in 1916 uh, and designed particularly to, uh, to try to, uh, to protect the, uh, the population of the sable in that particular area, uh, the sable, which had been hunted out uh, to localized extinction in a lot of areas uh, throughout Siberia over the preceding centuries, once they set up the uh, the Zapovietnik of the Nature Preserve, the uh, they were able to to kind of restock the populations of the sable within the Nature Preserve, and then they used those populations to then repopulate uh, the sable back into its kind of natural habitats in other parts of Siberia as well. So. Uh, they were really able to use them as kind of incubators of uh, uh, and uh, for you know for for species kind of re-expansion to territory that uh, these species had disappeared from because of of human overhunting and this sort of thing. Now it is also the case that the the Zapovietniks are not the only sort of story of nature pres- uh, nature protection and nature movements that are really uh, important. You know, as Julia Obertrice points to in, yeah, I was talking about earlier, in, in, in terms of the, uh, the 1970s and 1980s, we see in Central Asia the development of, of, uh, of an ecological protection movement that, that, was, you know, uh, that was very public and tremendously well heard and, uh, uh, and that had an impact on the, the political outcomes of, uh, of that era. Uh, and we see similar sorts of things in other parts of, uh, of Russia as well. Uh, Lake Baikal is probably the most famous of all of the different um, nature protection movements. Uh, Lake Baikal is, uh, as everybody may or may not know, is is the oldest and largest lake in the world, largest in terms of its depth, in terms of its volume of water, about 20% of all the surface fresh water on the planet. And uh, in the post-war period in particular, as there were efforts to develop industry and economic uh, activities uh, in and around the lake, uh, there was a very strong uh, Kind of Baikal protection movement that developed, uh, that found tremendous support throughout the Soviet Union, where Soviet citizens who really believed that Baikal was something really special uh, and worthy of protection uh, would speak up and uh, write letters to the to the editor, come to public meetings, and this sort of thing. So you have a very strong nature protection movement that developed at this time and and integrated in with um, uh, uh, with some of the Soviet uh, nature movements like the. Uh, 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 the All Union Kind of Nature Protection uh, Society uh, was a massive organization uh, run through the Soviet state, but one that was very that in, involved people all over the Soviet Union in uh, in environmental protection kinds of activities. You know, everything from litter cleanup to uh, all sorts of other sorts of things, and, and the list goes on. Uh, uh, in the Baltic states, nature protection was tremendously important, uh, both. Uh, 
uh, both for protecting nature itself, but also as a as a challenge to the Soviet control of their uh, of their territories. So. Uh, we do see a very strong nature protection movement in a variety of different forms uh, in, in Tsarist Russia and the Soviet Union. And this, again, speaks to the ways in which, uh, you know, the vision of, uh, of, of Russian environmental history is simply being one of kind of ecocide or simply a kind of negative story misses the, some of the larger points of, uh, of many of the other things that were going on. Well, thank you very much for talking with us. I think we've probably taken up enough of your time, uh, but it's been great listening to you. Um, so thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And um, thank you for all the great work you do putting out all these marvelous podcasts. 